are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy in all your upright heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me here to preach God's word to you. Uh, As Buster mentioned, I'm Nick. Uh, I'm actually a friend since seminary days of your future pastor who starts next week. And so uh, when Cody asked me uh, to, to help preach this weekend, I called Austin on Monday of this week and said, what do you want me to say to him? Like, what do you, is there anything I can help you with? He's like, man, whatever you think. He said, this is what I'm planning to do for the next few weeks. Here's what I'm planning to do for Easter. I said, well, I'm going to do your Easter sermon just to mess with you. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Um, but Austin is, is just, I'm just so thrilled for you as a church. Uh, Austin was instrumental in our church getting started. And so uh, our senior pastor is a guy named Bart. And then he had three part-time guys who were all in seminary, me, Austin, and another guy who had no idea what we were doing, but we were just there to help, move chairs, whatever. Uh, but Austin, so I, I, one of the things I oversee in our church is our small group ministry. Uh, and so even, even things that Austin did as one of our first small group leaders still exist in the nature and the DNA of all of our small groups, even just down to like the patterns he established in his group. And so uh, Austin left a big mark on our church. We're really excited he's coming back to Birmingham to be a part of your church and help you guys as y'all continue to grow and follow the Lord. Um, I'm going to read a, a, or just briefly pray and then we'll jump straight in. Father, we ask that you would help us now. We pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So on March the 8th, the year 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 took off from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, on its way to Beijing, China. The plane, a Boeing 777 carrying 12 crew members and 227 passengers, that's 239 people in all, Uh, But as you likely may know the story, MH370 never made it to Beijing. In fact, the plane never made it anywhere, at least not anywhere that was ever found. The plane basically disappeared. It was presumed to have crashed somewhere over the ocean, 
In the days after that, a multinational search for that airplane ensued. It was the most extensive and the most expensive search in aviation history. But during the midst of the search, there were dozens of theories put forward about this plane's disappearance. Was it hijackers who took over the plane and sent it into the ocean? Was it some hijackers who sometimes kidnapped 230-some-odd people and took them somewhere? Was it a plane malfunction or a number of malfunctions? Was it the Russians? Usually a good guess. Was it, was it Charles Widmore or Benjamin Linus or the Oceanic Six on board? For those of you who are Lost fans, there were no shortages of theories concerning this plane. But the most intriguing to me and the most outlandish theory that I came across was that the plane was somehow hijacked and then flown under radars all the way to the country of Kazakhstan. And there in Kazakhstan, according to this theory, there was a remote runway that was large enough to land a Boeing 777. And this runway was leased out from Kazakhstan to the Russians, who apparently used it for space shuttles at some point in the past. But the wildest part of this theory supposes that the Russians flew this plane undetected through the middle of the night, in between on top of whatever, under radars, all the way to Kazakhstan. And when the plane landed there, the theory supposes that it was then buried in the ground. And so I have a picture, I think, that's going to show up. And so you see here, this is from this blog post. Uh, I remember coming across this picture not long after that, um, spending way too long reading this blog post, probably. Um, but what you see is, on the right-hand side, a space in the dirt that's large enough for an airplane, even a Boeing 77, to be simply lowered into the ground and buried right there in this place. And so the left-hand side, you see kind of a silhouette of that airplane. And so when I, when I first saw this picture, I just remember being struck by the sheer impossibility of it, right? A plane that's dimensions are 209 feet long by 200 feet wide, 61 feet high. A plane full of people just buried in the ground, covered in the dirt with almost no one knowing about it. Now, I even bring all this up to say I think the theory is totally ridiculous, and never mind the fact that since that theory, parts of the plane have supposedly washed up on the coast of Africa. But what I want you to get in your head is a picture of what it would take to hide an operation like this. Imagine how much work. Imagine how much deception. Imagine how much energy it would take to bury a plane, a Boeing 77, 777, in the ground. And hold that thought in your mind, and let's rehear the words of Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then the turn. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So we're going to spend our time kind of in two halves of, 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 of an outline. The first half, we're just talking about the nature of confession. So we're trying to explore what does it mean for us to confess our sins before a holy God. And there's really three things I want you to consider as we walk through this first half, the nature of confession is three things. One, your sin must be covered. Two, you cannot cover it yourself. And three, confession is the act of uncovering your sin 
so that it can be covered by the blood of Jesus. Okay, we're going to take those each in turn. Okay, so part number one, your sin must be covered. Okay, so in other words, when we say your sin must be covered, sin is the major glaring problem in your life. It must be dealt with. And so briefly, let's try to build a, a theology of sin from this passage. So when we use that word sin, it's, it's an umbrella term of sorts. In the Bible, it gives us, uh, even in, in our specific passage, verses 1 and 2, it gives us various words to talk about what sin is. We'll highlight three of those in particular. First, you see, is the word transgression. When we talk about transgression, it's probably, probably terminology you've heard before, but it means willful acts of disobedience, right? Transgression is a deliberate overstepping of the boundaries. It's willful rebellion, doing what is prohibited. But the second word we see there is the word sin, right? And sin, as you're probably familiar with, is this idea of missing the mark, falling short of certain standards. So we think of passages like Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So transgressions are us doing what we ought not to have done, and then sins are us not doing what we should have done, right? But then thirdly, we see that there's another word, iniquity. Verse 2 uses that word, and iniquity just kind of contains this idea, the, the notion of our wicked tendency to bend, to twist, and distort God's commands, right? To, to, to bend God's order. So when this passage is trying to talk to us about the confession of sin, that's what sin is, according to verses 1 and 2. But also let's think about what sin does. So if you think about what sin is, let's think about what this passage is telling us that sin does. So sin committed against a holy God, if it's not forgiven, if it's not covered, if it is counted against us, it will destroy us. So sin destroys us. That's what it does, right? So just listen to the way David talks about it in verses 3 and 4. This is the third time you've heard this, but let's hear it again. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So what you need to see is that God has built into sin the side effect that is destruction. And he's done so in order so that when we sin, we would feel its destructive effects and turn away from it. Okay, so sin destroys. It eats away at our strength. It weighs upon us like a heavy burden. It destroys us. But also sin condemns us. So sin destroys us and it condemns us. So as you read those verses, verses 3 and 4, David's descriptions aren't just psychological. Verses 3 and 4 aren't, aren't merely talking about David's feelings, right? They're talking about spiritual realities that David experienced. So when sin, we think about our sin, it doesn't just put us in an uncomfortable psychological state. It puts us in a dangerous spiritual state. So that's what Paul's communicating to us in Romans 6, 23. He says that the wages of sin is death, right? So the payout, the reward for sin is death, both physical death at the end of this earthly life, but also a spiritual death for all of eternity. So sin destroys us in this life and condemns us to an eternity of punishment in hell for those very sins that we've committed against God. Okay, so that's just a brief little theology of sin, what it is and what it does. But according to Psalm 32, because of these destroying and condemning effects of sin, it must be dealt with. And in particular, Psalm 32 is telling us that the way it must be dealt with is that it must be covered. If you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? they take the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree they were forbidden to eat from. Once they eat from it, they realize that they are naked. 
Right? And then according to verses Genesis 3-7, they sew fig leaves together to make loincloths for themselves. And then when God comes looking for them in the garden, they hide themselves from him. And so what you see is that almost everything Adam and Eve do after eating that fruit is wrong, right? But they at least get one thing right. The thing they got right was the impulse to cover themselves. Okay? After they had sinned, they knew that, that that impulse was correct. They knew they needed a covering. They knew their sin must be covered. The psalmist is saying the same thing to us here in verse 1 of Psalm 32. Blessed, not miserable, not destroyed, but blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one whose sins are not counted against him or her. Blessed, we say that mean be truly happy, not just a temporary happiness, but a happiness that comes from a peace that, that comes from being in a right relationship with God. That's what this blessing is. So sin is an immense deal. So immense that it has led to the universal death sentence of every person you have ever met. Sin is so immense that the only conceivable solution to the problem of sin required the God of the universe to be tortured on the cross as a propitiation for it. So sin requires a substantial covering, which leads us to the second point. So your sin must be covered, but you can't cover it yourself. Okay? Your sin must be covered, but number two, you cannot cover it yourself. So even as we return to the story of Adam and Eve, they knew they needed a covering, but their attempt at covering was utterly futile. Next time you're standing next to a tree, I want you to imagine clothing yourself with the leaves from that tree. Right? It's, the, it's like the nightmare that you're about to go and preach a sermon and you realize you don't have any pants. Um, that's, a, that's a dream preachers have. Um, but uh, imagine using leaves to cover your own nakedness. Forget the, the uncomfortableness of that, but realize the impossibility of it. And then apply that directly to your own life. Your attempts at self-cover are every bit as ridiculous as a fig leaf loincloth. Loin and we can all think of ways we try to do this, where we try to cover our own sins. Maybe, maybe you are particularly skilled at spinning a web of well-connected half-truths and whole lies to divert attention from the ways that you have sinned. Maybe that's your version of self-cover. Or maybe you are expertly adept at clearing the search history on your phone or your, compu your computer in an attempt to clear your tracks of the things you have accessed. But if that's you, isn't it true that even if you are careful to delete a digital trace, you can't delete a feeling of a burdened conscience? Maybe self-cover for you looks like just trivializing your sins. You, you try to make them look less important, less significant than what they really are. You say, sure, I gossiped about that person, but it was with a trusted friend. We didn't say anything that was very harmful. Maybe self-cover looks like rationalizing your sins. You rationalize it. You attempt to explain away, justify your behavior with logical, plausible reasons, even if they are not true. Sure, I cheated on my taxes, but the government was going to misuse that money anyway. Or maybe your self-cover looks like just relativizing your sin, treating your actions as if they were relative to or dependent upon someone or something else. Look, the only reason I lashed out at my kids was because of the way they were disrespecting me. You see, they were disobeying one of the Ten Commandments, right? And so that's why I responded in the way that I did. 
All of these are attempts at self-cover. We may straight up tell lies. We may carefully delete or burn the evidence. We may trivialize. It's not a big deal. We may rationalize. Well, here's why I needed to do that. We may relativize. I only did this because they did that. But to be sure, we can think of lots of different ways that we do this. But what you see is that the main label that our passage wants to put on self-cover is the label of deception. So deception, whether that's an attempt to deceive others or an attempt to deceive ourselves about the reality of our sins. Deception is at the heart of our self-cover. And if we're thinking about Genesis 3 again, deception is the devil's work, right? So notice how deception, that word deceit, it's really kind of the swing word in these verses we've just read, right? So verse 2, the ones who, in whom there is no deceit, they receive the blessing of forgiveness. But then the ones who operate under the cloak of deceit, deceiving others, deceiving themselves about their sins, they are on this path of destruction that's talked about in verses 3 and 4. So when I kept silent, namely in deception, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. So why, why, do, we, why do we think David talks about it that way? That while operating under deception, it feels as if God's hand is heavy upon him, sapping his strength. Here's what God, God wants us to see the futility of deception. If you just look over one page in your Bible, maybe even on the same page, in Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15. So we're not even going far. We're just going to the next Psalm over. Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15 say this. The Lord looks down from heaven, and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. That means you. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. So if this is who God is, then how is deception possible? We may deceive other people through our careful plotting. We may deceive ourselves through the mind games that we play. But try as we might, we cannot deceive the only one whose opinion matters. We cannot cover our sins in God's sight. Try as we might, self-cover and deception always leads us to the misery you see described in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. Might we just pause and and marvel for just a minute at the Bible's ability to so perfectly describe the psychological, even, even the physiological state of guilt. Isn't it amazing that the Bible can tell you exactly what you feel like when you're stuck in your sin? So as you read those verses, the question that the text is screaming at you is, have you ever felt this? Have you ever felt so burdened that you felt as if a physical weight was placed upon you? So tired of spending your energy hiding that it felt like you were wasting away inside. So concerned with covering your tracks that you feel like you've just run a marathon in the summer's heat. Yesterday was Mercedes Marathon for Kids Day. I actually saw Cody uh, out there at the marathon. Um, there's a reason why we run that marathon thing in, in February, right, in, in Birmingham, because it's not... July, when you don't run marathons in summer heat. That's kind of what this passage is trying to get at. Have you ever felt just sapped of your strength as if you run in the summer's heat because of your sin? But even as you reckon with that, you need to hear the good news that God has for those who are guilty of sin. It can be forgiven. It, you can be counted free. Your sin can be covered, and here's how. So point number three there. Confession is the act of uncovering our sin so that it can be covered by the blood of Jesus. Okay? Confession is simply us uncovering our sin so that it can be covered by the blood of Jesus. So according to Psalm 32, 
That's all confession is, uncovering our sins before God. We come to God not to hide, not to cover our sins ourselves, but to uncover them so that he could cover them for us, right? The result is the same, but one actually works, whereas the other doesn't. So we drag our sins out of the darkness into the light. We remove the cloak of deception, and we tell the truth about ourselves. So what does confession look like? What, what elements are going to be present if we're rightly confessing our sins? Let me just give you a few. In confession, we acknowledge that whatever our sin is, it's been committed against God. Right? Whatever our sin is, it's been committed fundamentally against God. We make it clear that he is the one who has been sinned against. That's why David says in Psalm 51.4, after he's done a lot of bad things, Psalm 51 comes to us, but he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Right? So David makes it clear that his sin is a cosmic one because it's been committed against the God of the cosmos. Right? It's God that we haven't listened to. It's God that we've rebelled against. It's God that we act like we know better than. It's God that we wish were not in our lives. It's him that we are sinning against. And so when we come to him in confession, we make that fact plain. We say that he, God, is the ultimately offended party. But also in confession, we own up to our sin. We refuse to make excuses for it. So on the judgment day, we'll stand there alone. Right? Before the throne of God's judgment, we cannot point to extenuating circumstances that forced our hand into sin. We cannot point to other people who strung us along into sin. We have to give an account for ourselves. No rationalizing, no relativizing, no self-justifying. And so in confession, we own the responsibility for our sin. Right? So, so when we confess to God, that means we refuse to use that word, but, right? So we all do that after an apology, don't we? We know we need to apologize, but we want to justify ourselves. I'm sorry, but if you had just got ready a little bit earlier, this wouldn't have been a problem, right? Uh, honest, honest confession refuses the impulse to tack on that conjunction and the corresponding excuse. It just, it just owns the responsibility. Not I'm sorry, but, but I'm sorry for, right? In confession, we uncover our sin and we call it what it is, in all of its ugliness, right? That means we name our sins and we name them explicitly. As God reveals sins to us in their specificity, we confess our sins with specificity and with concrete detail. So not just generally. So when you confess your sins, you don't say, I'm sorry for looking at that thing I shouldn't have looked at. But you acknowledge and you say, before God, that I dehumanized, I objectified another image bearer that God prizes and esteems all for my own cheap satisfaction. When you confess, you don't just say, Kids, I'm sorry for disobeying my parents, but you say, I'm sorry that I've dishonored those that you, God, have placed in my life for my good, for my flourishing, these people that God has told me to honor as a reflection of how I honor him. Okay, when we confess our sins, we don't just say, sorry for getting angry with my kids, I'm sorry for getting angry with my roommate, but you say, you acknowledge before God that rather than loving my neighbor as myself, I committed murder in my heart. And the angry words, the harsh tone that I used, those were the violent weapons I used against my victim. When you confess your sins, you don't just say, sorry for being lazy, but you acknowledge God has entrusted you with an unbelievable amount of time, resources, and knowledge, and you squandered them away on yourself and not on God's kingdom, maybe even to the eternal harm of other people around you. When you confess your sins, you don't just say, sorry for being prideful, but you confess that you sinned in precisely the same way that the devil himself did. And you tried to place yourself on his throne, assuming that your judgment, your importance, was greater than God's. When you, sin, when you confess your sins, you don't just say, I'm sorry for looking at my phone too much, but you acknowledge that your loves are disordered to the point that you seek satisfaction and joy in a broken cistern that cannot satisfy you. 
So in confession, what we're doing, we're naming our sins specifically, and we call them what they are in all of their ugliness. And the reason we do that is that kind of specific confession, it, it leads us to better repentance. The Bible, the Bible assumes that confession and repentance go together. That's the presupposition there. It presumes that when we confess our sins, we're also following it with repentance. So we're not uncovering sins just so that we can keep walking in them, right? We uncover them. We see how ugly they are, they are so that we can turn away from them. And the better, the, the, the better vision we have of the ugliness of our sins, the better we'll repent, Okay. So that's why we, we name what, what our sins are in all of their reality with specificity. And finally, when we think about confession, in confession, we lay hold of Jesus so that he might cover our sins. So we lay hold of Jesus because only his perfect obedience is enough to stand in the place for our disobedience. We lay hold of Jesus because only his blood and righteousness are sufficient to cover our sins. We lay hold of Jesus because we cannot cover our sins ourselves. We can put it this way. Covering our sins ourselves would be like trying to steal an airplane and trying to bury it in a sandbox, right? It's an impossibility. Not only is it an impossibility, it's absurd, right? How could we? I think that image is a perfect parallel for us trying to cover our own sins. Remember, remember what we said earlier. If your sin is as big of a deal as God says it is, if your sin is really as weighty as God says it is, if your sin was the size of a Boeing 777, would you rather make the effort to cover it yourself or would you rather have God plunge it into the depths of the sea for you? Would you rather try to, to bury it or have him throw it into a sea without bottom or shore so that it would never be seen again? Because that's the offer that's held out to you in the gospel. Micah 7, 18 and 19 says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So that's the hope of the gospel. And the blood of Jesus is the only way, the only way that your sins can be covered. Through the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, God the just is pleased to look on Jesus and pardon our iniquity. In Jesus, God is pleased to pass over our transgressions because he is pleased to pour out his wrath upon Jesus in our place. In Jesus, God treads our iniquities underfoot because Jesus was willing to be tread under the foot of God's justice on our behalf. Through Jesus, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea, never to be found out again, never to be brought back into God's sight, never to rise up out of that water in judgment to condemn us because Jesus was condemned for us. And all of this is offered. All of this is offered to you, provided you reject the implausible notion that you can cover your sins yourself. But if we uncover them, and we lay hold of Jesus and we say, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, Psalm 32.5, then he will forgive the iniquity of your sin. If you seek to maintain your own cover, you can't let go and lay hold of the cover that Jesus offers. Now, before we turn to the next sec section, let me just ask, what keeps you from confession? Is it pride? Is it shame? Is it unbelief? 
Is it hard heartedness? Whatever it is, I would tell you, ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify that thing. Then ask that he would lessen its grip on your life, that you might know the freedom that's to be found in honest confession of your sin. Are you tired of hiding? Are you tired of trying to take on the impossible task of covering your sins by yourself? Are you, try, are you tired of deceiving others, even deceiving yourself? Do you, do you feel like you've been trying to bury an airplane in a sandbox? If so, then find your rest. Find your cover in Jesus Christ. Uncover them, and he will be pleased to cover them with the blood and righteousness of Jesus. So That's the nature of confession. That's what's going on here. But even as we think about the need of confession, I just want to give us six pretty brief points to kind of push you forward into this. Okay, so kind of done like a theology of confession, what confession is. The next part is just kind of six points trying to tell you why you should give yourself to this. Okay, and this, most of these are all coming from Psalm 32. So the point number one, communion with God requires confession of sin. Okay, so communion with God requires confession of sin. So this is a necessary ingredient for a sinful human being to have a relationship with a holy God. Sin always creates distance between us and God, but God is gracious enough to give us this mechanism, confession, so that we might maintain closeness to him. Okay? So Psalm 32, it's called a confession. They're not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a gift to you. God is showing you this is how you can be close to him. This is how you can have a blessed life. It's an incredibly kind thing of God to offer that to us. Point number two, community with God's people is strengthened by the confession of sin. Okay, so if communion with God is, is made possible or require, is, requires the confession of sin, community with God's people is strengthened by the confession of sin. Now, the primary application of Psalm 32 is that our confession of sin there is vertical, right? It's mainly dealing with our relationship with God. But I think as we think about the church, there's an opportunity for us to apply this in a horizontal sense. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this, Does all this mean that confession to a brother, to a sister, is a divine law? There's no confession. It's not a law. It's an offer of divine help for the sinner. And then hear this. Who can refuse, without suffering loss, a help that God deemed it necessary to offer? Who can refuse without suffering loss a help that God deemed it necessary to offer? So while Psalm 32 is encouraging us to confess our sins to God, not necessarily primarily to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, there's other places in Scripture, James 5.16, that would tell us explicitly to confess our sins to one another. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. So you might ask, well, why would God want us to walk through something so uncomfortable? The answer is because he wants to help you, right? He wants to help you, and he wants us to help each other. Bonhoeffer also, in that same kind of quote where, where I just pulled the first quote, he says this, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. Have you ever felt that way? Utterly alone. We all have. But when I publicly confess a sin struggle and four or five guys in my small group have the chance to say, I understand. I've been there. That has an, the ability to help, help declaw sin, right? To, to render it less powerful in my life. But, but not only that, those brothers have the opportunity to help point me back to Jesus, point me back to the one who forgives sinners. So kind of, if you boil this point down to a nutshell, we say this, confession fosters community 
and community fosters confession. Okay, confession fosters community, and community fosters confession. So if you're, if you're rightly living out the truths of Psalm 32, you'll naturally confess your sins to brothers or sisters in this church. That doesn't mean to everyone, okay? That's, I want to be clear about that. God doesn't expect that. But it does mean cultivating confession in a, in a small group of trusted brothers or sisters. Maybe that is your small group, or maybe that's a discipling relationship you already have, or maybe a discipling relationship you need to start. Right? But communal life in this body, in a manual church, will be strengthened by communal confession of sin. Number three, intentionally delaying confession is a dangerous presumption. I take that right out of verse 6, where it says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So the psalmist is saying that it's foolish to put off prayer. It's foolish, in particular, to put off confession of sin, continually walling yourself off from confession and hiding your sin and covering up. All, all that just numbs you to what God's talking to you about. Right? It numbs your conscience. The more you stuff all that, the harder it is for your spiritual ears to hear the call to confession. So when we purposefully run from confession, when we intentionally delay confession, confession we're, we're numbing ourselves, setting ourselves up for spiritual danger. So I want you to, to hear these verses and be warned. If you're saying, I'll deal with this later, or I'll wait for someone else to kind of take the plunge on confession, and then maybe I'll think about joining in. If that's how you're thinking, just know that that's a dangerous presumption. This verse talks about the godly offering prayer at a time when you may be found, when, when, he, when God may be found. Some translations say that faithful followers should pray while there is a window of opportunity. And so the warning is that the window of opportunity could close, right? And, and, and in perpetually delaying obedience to God in this, you may be placing yourself in spiritual danger. So be warned of intentionally delaying confession and repentance. That's a, that's a dangerous presumption. Point number four comes from verse seven. It says this, it makes no sense to hide from the one who is our only hiding place. It makes no sense to hide from the one who is our hiding place. That's what verse 7 says. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So just like Adam and Eve, our tendency is to hide ourselves from God when we have sinned. But the gospel tells us that there is only one safe hiding place, and it just so happens to be the one that we tend to hide from. So Psalm 32 verse 7 is telling us, Quit running, quit hiding, and come to the rock of ages. Right? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So where else should we go? It makes no sense for us to hide from the one who is our only hiding place. That's why we are propelled into confession. A couple more points. Number five, irrational stubbornness in this matter could subtly lead you to hell. Okay? So being irrationally stubborn when it comes to confession, it could subtly lead you to hell. I take that from verses 8 and 9 where he says this. And so uh, what you see here is David kind of turns from talking to God to talking to us, right? Talking to his audience, right? So David is someone who's felt the destroying work of sin in his life, right? He's someone who's walked through the futility of trying to cover his own sin, but then he found the freedom of uncovering his sin and letting God cover it for him. So David, now he's talking directly to us and he's teaching us and he says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So David wants to see there is an irrationality to sin, right? The more we give way to it, the more irrational we become. The more we, the more we suppress the truth, the crazier we become, right? The more we let sin run unchecked in our lives, the less sane we become. Right? So if you're stood on the, maybe the backside of, of some sin you've committed and you thought to yourself, what was I thinking? How could I have believed the lies I have told myself to get me to? Get me here. I mean, that, that's, that's what sin does. According to verse 8 and 9, sin makes us irrational, like, like beasts, like horses or mules without understanding. Okay? Not only are these animals irrational, but at the same time, you need to see they're stubborn, right? They're irrational and they're stubborn. So whatever you're telling yourself right now to downplay this in your mind, whatever stubbornness that you are yielding to in order to avoid the confession of sin, know that that's irrational. And you're speaking irrationally to yourself. To hear from God's word, to hear from David's experience, but then to walk away and ignore this instruction, that's irrational. So God's word is, is, is warning you, don't do it. Don't walk away from this. And then number six, last point, the burden of sorrow. It weighs those who conceal their sins, but the blessing of joy lift the, lifts those who confess it. So the burden of sorrow weighs down people who conceal their sins, but the blessing of joy lifts those who confess. And I'll just read those last two verses once more. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. So in these verses, there's, there's two groups of people, two categories of person described. There's this, the wicked and there's the, the upright and in light of the full teaching of this psalm, we can say that the wicked are the ones who are still burdened by their sins, right? Their sins are concealed and thus not covered by God's grace. So they're burdened by those. The wicked are these people who are still burdened by their sins. But the upright, on the other hand, the upright in heart are those who, who have had their sins confessed and covered, right? So that's what it means to be upright. That's what it means to be righteous. If you go all the way back to verses 1 and 2, you notice how the Bible does not say, blessed is the one who has no transgressions. Blessed is the one whose sin is non-existent. No, the Bible's utterly realistic here. There is no sinless man except for the God-man himself. So the Bible has a, has a gracious understanding of who we are, and it doesn't say, blessed are the ones with a squeaky clean record, but he says, blessed is the one whose sin is not counted against him. So this passage, it's not calling us to some sort of sin, sinless perfection. That's an impossible standard, but it is calling us to an honest accounting for our sins. Being upright does not mean being perfect. No, being upright means being right with God through confession and through the covering that comes by His grace. That's what it means to be blessed. So Psalm 32, it's, it's leaving us with a question. So we've got these two groups, right? the wicked and the upright. The question that's leaving us with is, which one will you be in? Which one will you be in today? Will you remain under the burden and sorrow of concealing your sins? And if so, again, this passage is reminding you, that road is paved with misery. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. So will you be among them or will you come out of hiding? Will you be found among the upright, among those who humbly uncover their sins before God so that he would graciously cover them by the blood of Jesus? For those of us who want to be in that camp, Psalm 32, 11 promises gladness instead of sorrow. 
And so the question is, which one will you choose? Now I'm going to pray for us. And I'm just going to offer up a prayer of confession. And so I know y'all probably regularly do that in your services. We just kind of saved it for the end of the service. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession and just invite you to join alongside me in a spirit of confession as I just kind of broadly name sins and you pray in your heart to the Lord, confessing those, and then we will continue worship. But let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you because you are the God who hears prayer. We come before you because you are the God who sees. We come before you because you are the only God. You are the God we have sinned against, and you are the only hope we have in escaping those sins. And so, Lord, we we long for this blessed life, not the blessed life as the world promotes it, but blessing as you describe it, having our transgression forgiven having our sin covered and our iniquity not counted against us. And so we look and lay hold of your blessing by the blood of Christ. And so we come to confess our sins in your presence. And so we ask that you would pardon all our sins of this day, this week, this year, all the sins of our lives, sins of early, middle, and advanced years, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of moody, irritable, and angry tempers, Sins of lip, life, and walk, of hard-heartedness, unbelief, presumption, and pride. Sins of unfaithfulness to the souls of men, of, of want, of bold decision in the cause of Christ. Sins of deficiency and outspoken zeal for His glory, of, of bringing dishonor upon your great name. Sins of deception, injustice, untruthfulness in my dealings with others. Sins of impurity in thought and word and deed. Sins of covetousness, which is idolatry. Sins of substance unduly hoarded or carelessly and improvidently squandered. Sins not consecrated to the glory of you, the great giver. Sins that we've committed in private and in the family, in study and in recreation, in the busy places of men, in the study of your word and in the neglect of it, in prayer irreverently offered or coolly withheld. Sins of time misspent, of yielding to Satan's devices. Sins of opening our heart to his temptation. Sins of being unwatchful when we know that he is near and in quenching your Holy Spirit. Sins against the light and knowledge, against conscience and the restraints of your spirit, against the law of eternal love. So pardon all our sins, known and unknown, felt and unfelt, confessed and not confessed, remembered or forgotten. Good Lord, hear and hearing. Forgive, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.